0: Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Ephesians 4, 29. I want to do something this morning that I very seldom do or really don't remember doing often. I want to, instead of taking a passage and developing the life that's in that passage, I want to take this verse as the text. And I want to use, use it and have, find other verses that support the idea of it. And so you'll need your New Testament there handy to follow with me. Verse 29 of Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. Edification meaning the building up, building one another up. Um, constructively is the idea, according to the need of that particular moment that it may give grace to those who hear. I believe if you have a, a King James, it's the real Bible, it's ministering grace to those who hear. Somebody said that the word of God is like a well. It seems like the more you draw from it the deeper it is and no one has ever found a rope that's long enough to reach the bottom nor have they found a bucket big enough to dip it all out at once I think that is especially true with regard to this verse I must have read this verse a hundred times but I had never seen the truth or the principle that is in the last part of this verse that we are to minister grace to others. Now what he's saying is, is that we are to respond to the grace of God in such a proper way that we would minister that grace to others. That we have a responsibility for our spiritual growth. I have a responsibility to grow spiritually as a Christian, but I also have a responsibility for your spiritual growth as well, and so do you as a member of the body of Christ, that we each have a responsibility to grow and mature and develop in the Christian life, but that responsibility doesn't end there. We have a responsibility to, the, uh, to minister grace to others so that others may grow and mature and develop in the body of Christ And that responsibility we cannot ignore, nor can we evade. Now, not only is it taught here, it's taught in other places. I just want to mention a couple of them uh, to you. You might jot down the references if you like. Romans 14, 19, So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another, Romans 15, 1 and 2 reads like this, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Whatever you're doing and building one another up, you keep up the good work. Now back to this verse. It's a kind of a two-sided coin really one side negative side is is that we're to refrain from corrupt communication the other side of the coin is is that we're to do those things or to say those things that build one another up and that's our responsibility the responsibility of ministering grace now you may have thought that God is the only one who can minister grace but you're wrong really because The Apostle Paul begins and ends his epistles ministering grace. And actually, what the church is, is a body of fellowship of people ministering grace to one another. I cannot tell you how many people have contributed to my Christianity. I am what I am by the grace of God, but that grace has worked through the lives of other people who have exhibited and demonstrated and lived out Jesus before me, ministering grace to me. So our responsibility is the responsibility of ministering grace. Now what I want to do this morning is to show you how four ways that we can minister grace to one another. I want you to get this. Oh, how I want you to get this. The first way that we minister grace to one another is by constructive speech, constructive speech. Now I want to refer you to this verse again, but I want to remind you of Colossians 4, 6. This is what it reads. It says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you know, may know how to respond to each other. You know how you should respond to each other. Now what he's saying is this, is that we as Christians need to be very careful about our conversation and our language to be sure that that conversation ministers grace and is useful in building up the believer now that doesn't mean that you're to go around with an open Bible and your finger on a verse of Scripture and quoting some biblical truth some folks Think it they haven't had a conversation, if they hadn't brought up some biblical principle, they'd bark at somebody. He's not saying that we're not to talk about anything but religion or spiritual principles. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying is this, that when you talk, when you engage one in conversation, be very careful that your speech communicates grace and is useful in building up their lives. For you see, there is power in words. A postman paused at the door of a house to talk to a little boy about his baby sister. And he said to the little boy, How's your baby sister? She said, Well, she's doing great. And he said, Can she talk yet? He knew she couldn't, but he just kind of tested it a little ways. Can she talk yet? And the little boy said, No, she's got some teeth, but her words ain't come in yet. Now, we, we've got words. I mean, we talk. One guy said, every time my wife goes to the beach, she gets sunburn of the tongue. I mean, we, we use words. And there, there, is, there is power in words. If you don't believe that there's power in words, the next time you get on a plane, a DFW, you just say four words. I've got a gun. And I promise you that those four words... Will shut down a national airline. They'll have every security guard in DFW giving you your their undivided attention. And those four words will get you four to six months free room and board in the slammer. I mean, there are power in words. There is life and death in the word. Listen to me. Proverbs 18:21 says, There is death and life in the power of the tongue so that what you say administers life or it causes death. I love to go to track meets. Especially do I love to go to track meets where there's little kids like elementary or middle school track meets. And I've observed parents often station themselves in places where they can call out to their children as they come down the track. And I've listened to what they've shouted. You know, it's always, go, Billy, strain, stretch, pump, pull. You can do it. I've never heard a parent cry out. Billy, you look tired. Why don't you quit? (laughs) Maybe track is not your sport. (laughs) Have you tried tennis? (laughs) Never say that. It's always some word of life, and it just kind of infuses energy but they're words of death. And I heard about a middle-aged man who had been under the care of four psychiatrists. Lawrence Crabb talks about him in his book. Let's start over again. And when this this man was just a boy, his father was a self-made CEO of a large corporation, and he would say to his son, son, one of these days it's going to be your business. You're probably not going to be able to make it. You just don't have business sense. You're going to fail you're going to run it. And that boy grew up with that death word in his mind. And when his father died, he he was so afraid of failure that he poured himself into his work. And he began to work 18 to 20 hours a week uh, a day, not so that he would not fail, not fulfill his father's prophecy. And because of his workaholic schedule, he began to drink and take drugs to numb the pain. And he drove himself, driven by the thought, I cannot fail his father's words. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You'll never make it. Death words. And sometimes they're shallow words. I know a man from from another culture who, went to a church and, 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 and they had a fellowship for his age group after church and a group of young Christians were all together and they met this young man from another culture and they said, Abdul, we want you to come over some night and have dinner with us. We're looking forward to having dinner with you. He took him seriously. So every day he got off work, he'd rush home expecting a call. It never came. And he sat by the telephone waiting for that call. Come over and eat, lunch, eat dinner with us. It never came. He said, it took me 30 days to realize they didn't mean it. And so we see people on the street and we say, how are you doing? We don't care, really. And we pat each other on the back and we say, good to see you. Oh, I despise that. We want to have lunch together sometime. Looking forward to eating lunch with you sometime. What those words really mean are just... These are just disguises that say that we're just being courteous, keep your distance. We really don't mean it. Words have power. And the bottom line of this verse is this, that when we have refrained from those things like slander and gossip and criticism that create a a root of bitterness and malice, when we refrain from that, we're not through. We are to, when we talk, be sure that that talk communicates grace. Like the man who left an extra tip in the the restaurant, and when the girl went to get the tip, she was just in awe of the amount, and he looked at her and said, young lady, God has been so good to me, I thought I would just share a little extra with you. Life words. Now we can minister grace not only by careful speech, secondly, We minister grace by conscientious behavior. Watch this. I want you to turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Romans. Now, while you're turning to that, I need you to turn to that. 14th chapter of the book of Romans. Let me tell you what's happening here. Paul is dealing with this. Meat offered to idols, controversy that was raging in the first century. This is what it was. We'll never encounter anything like this, probably. But they had these sacrifices, these altars where pagans brought sacrifices and put them on the altar uh, to these pagans. And it was choice meat, it was prime. And so these keepers of these pagan temples would take the sacrifices after they'd been made at the altar they'd take that meat down to the market and sell it. And it was choice. And some Christians were going down there and buying that meat. But there were Christians within the church that, in that first century church, that had a very strong conviction that to eat that meat offered to idols was wrong. Somehow they felt that if they ate that meat, they would be participating in that pagan worship. Now The Apostle Paul was saying all through... Romans and 1 Corinthians that that's not right, that's not true, we know that, 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 that would not be wrong, but if somebody else has a strong conviction about this we must refrain from doing it lest we cause them to stumble that's what he says in Romans 14, 19, watch this so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It's good not to eat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Look at that. Paul is saying this. He's saying before I do something, watch this young people, Before I do something, I need to to ask myself, how is that going to affect other people? You say, well, that's not going to hurt anybody if I do this. That's not the only question I have. It's not just, is it going to hurt anybody or not? Is it going to help anybody or not? Because we're here to build one another up. We've already established that. So that before I do something, I have to ask myself, Is that going to help or hurt somebody? Let me ask you a question. If the people in this room knew all about you, what you did last week, would it make them better or worse? And what he's saying is this, when he talks about sinning against the conscience and sinning against faith, what he's saying is that there are some people who know you and they respect you and they admire you and they, they follow you, and they may have a strong conviction about something, but they see you do it, so it must be okay. And so they do it not because they believe it's right, but because they see you do it. That's what Paul means when he talks about sinning against the conscience or sinning against faith. It's what I do because I see somebody else doing it. It's, it's causing somebody to sin. Now... While you're still thinking about this, I want you to look to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at this quickly. Verse 1 and verse 9. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. I know it's not wrong, but that makes me, you know, very arrogant and proud. But Look at verse 9. He says, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 9. Now listen to me, please. Paul is saying that there are some things we're going to have to put out of our life simply because they hurt other people. He's saying that there, are some, there, are, there, there comes a time when, in our life where we have to give up our liberties and our freedoms for the sake of somebody else and our influence. You say, well, that's pretty radical. Well, Christianity is radical. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest English preacher that's ever lived, has a sermon which he calls, The Baby is King. And he says, in every home, a new baby is king. Uh, When it receives the warmest welcome, you bring a baby in and everybody just falls all over you. And I'd be, whoa, you don't go all that baby talk. Babies eat first, and parents make their, they, they, they make their schedule around their babies. I mean, they could go and come as they pleased till the baby came. Now they've got to take care of that baby or get a babysitter. I see a lot of mamas and daddies grinning. That's, we know that's true. Now, Charles Spurgeon says that the king of the church, the king is the weakest baby Christian. He should receive the warmest welcome. And our conduct and our life should be done considering Him. And somebody saw a picture of a blind man carrying a lantern. And a person said, what is that blind man carrying a lantern for? He can't see. And a wise person standing nearby said, he's carrying that lantern not so that he can see you, he's carrying that lantern so you can see him. Parent, did you see that lantern in the hand of your child? He's saying, I want you to see me and I want you to live your life so you won't hurt me. Employer, did you see that lantern in the hand of the employee? Christian, do you see that lantern in the hand of that Christian sitting across the aisle from you? He is saying to you, I want you to see me and I want you to live your life in a way that won't hurt me. Nobody can enter this world into the stream of human history without increasing or decreasing the sum total of human happiness. And nobody can live his life without affecting somebody else for better or worse. And Ray shared his book the other day with me, Campola's new book. And he tells in there about Rita Snowden, this famous British author. She was sitting one afternoon in a little village up near Dover, one of those uh, sidewalk cafes that are so beautiful and wonderful in Europe. And she was sitting out in the sidewalk cafe one afternoon, uh, late, just drinking a cup of tea. Nobody was around. And all of a sudden she said, I felt like I was surrounded with flowers, fragrant flowers. The smell was just gorgeous. And I asked the waiter, what in the world? What is that smell? What is that wonderful smell? And the guy said, oh, well, the perfume factory is closing. And the folks who work in the perfume factory all day long or bringing their fragrance out into the streets, oh, I would to God, that what you experience with regard to Jesus Christ, His fragrance and His beauty, you would carry with you out into the street. Somebody said, when you came, I was looking down. When you left, I was looking up. We can minister grace by conscientious behavior. Third, we minister grace by the compassionate giving to those in need. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Same writer, same to the same people, same chapter as I just finished, but I want you to go to chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians verse 1. Look at this. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches at Macedonia. Now, when he talks about the grace of God given in the churches of Macedonia, he's not talking about people being saved in Macedonia. He's talking about this love offering that these folks gathered up for the churches of Macedonia. Now, I need to say something about giving to needs. Two things. Number one is, it doesn't really do a whole lot of good just to give to somebody something you know I mean just cause a guy comes through town and he's dirty and has poor clothes and unshaven smells bad and we give him something to eat we we, come on we, we haven't really helped him we just helped him get down the road till he can get it to somebody else's you know get another meal from somebody else. the welfare system doesn't work you don't help anybody but just giving them something and the the second thing I need to say about giving is is that you can give and if you hate to give you might as well keep your money I mean resentful giving doesn't do a whole lot of good to you or anybody else I'm talking about compassionate giving to the needs of others let me tell you how to build somebody up is to be there at that moment of their need and give to them either your money or your concern or your time now you know the whole tub is this young guy uh, went to work here at the church as a part-time custodian, and he, he's, he went back to college because he's surrendered to preach. He's 33 years old and, and, and has, has, a, has a wife, and she's working, and they're struggling. Well, right before Christmas, he got sick and nearly died. He's still in the hospital and will be there a couple of more weeks. Can you believe that? He's been in major, major care in, a, in major hospitals ever since before Christmas. And some of you the need that that young couple had, have, has, whatever, <laughs> and you you got together. Some of you got together some money for them. Well, did you see that? Did you see in the messenger? Well, in case you didn't see it, here's what she said about it. Words cannot express our thanks to each of you. This has been a time of illness and uncertainty in our lives, but we want you to know that it is neither of these that we will remember. That is, uncertainty and illness. But instead, this is what we're going to remember, but instead, the new perspective of God's love that has been expressed through you. As I read about love in Romans 12, it comes alive to me as never before. Thank you for all you've done in Christ's love. The whole tub. Now, you may not give money, but I'm talking about the giving of what is needed at the moment. It may be just time. It may be your ear to listen. It may be concern. Whatever it is, you build one another up when you do that. Isn't that right? One out of 500 does. Now, you believe you, you like Chuck Swindoll... Now, if I I say it, you probably wouldn't believe it, but if Chuck says it, you will believe it. Listen to what he says. Churches need to be less like national shrines and more like local bars. Less like untouchable cathedrals and more like well-used hospitals. Places to bleed in rather than monuments to look at. Places where you can take your mask off and let your hair down. Places where you can have your wounds dressed. It's like my marine buddy recently turned Christian said as he lamented the absence of a place of refuge. Quote, the only thing I miss is that old fellowship all the guys in our outfit used to have down at the slop shoot. I guess he meant the bar. We'd sit around, laugh, tell stories, drink a few beers, and really let our hair down. Boy, it was great. But now I ain't got nobody to tell my troubles to to admit my faults to I can't find anybody in church who will put their arms around me and tell me I'm still okay man it's kinda lonely in there where does a guy go when the bottom drops out to whom do we Christians turn when stuff that's embarrassing or a little scandalous happens who cares enough to listen when we cry who affirms us when we feel rotten who will Close their mouths and open their hearts, and even though we deserve a swift kick in the pants, who will embrace us with understanding and give us and give us time to heal without quoting verses? Without giving us a cassette tape of this sermon. Without telling, without telling a bunch of other Christians so that they can, quote, pray more intelligently, end quote. Yeah, we need more shelters for storm victims. Listen to this, it's okay if they look like churches on the outside just so folks don't act churchy on the inside for most hurting people I meet are fed up with churchy Christians. Amen and amen. How do you build one another up? You build one another up by compassionate giving to their needs whether it's your time or your interest or your listening or your love. One last thought please. We care, we minister grace by consistent intercession. I can't read you today I, 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 the number of times that Paul says, I won't, won't do it, but it's in here. How many times the Apostle Paul refers to the fact that he labors for them in prayer. He labors for them in prayer, he pours out his intercession. For the Christians. You remember what Peter, you know, remember that Peter uh, dialogue that Peter and Jesus had at the last Last Supper? And Jesus said to Simon, said, Simon, the, the, the devil desires to have you that he can sift you, but I've prayed that your faith not utterly fail. Can you imagine that? Our Lord praying for one, he still is. And the greatest thing you and I can ever do for any other person is to continuously lift them toward God in prayer. The best thing I can do for you is not give you this sermon, but to pray for you daily. I shared this Wednesday night, and I'll do it again here. I was reading, uh, you know, in the book of Ephesians, where Paul was, I was looking really, I was looking for prayers that. Paul prayed for other people so I could use the same prayers. And he said, I pray that to the Ephesians, about the Ephesians, I pray that they might receive wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, and the eyes of their hearts might be opened. And I thought, well, that's, that's what I need to pray. So I'm going to pray for Andy. I'm going to pray, Lord. I pray that you'll give Andy a wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And that the eyes of his heart might be open. And one day I was, I was doing my own quiet time and I was reading another verse of scripture, and from that verse of scripture, there just it, a light came on, it was like a revelation. I saw a truth I'd never seen before. It blessed my life. You know what I thought when I read it, I thought somebody's praying for me. If somebody prays, that you get wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him and you're reading God's word and you get revelation from and uh, knowledge of him, boy, you better be thankful. Somebody's praying for you. Now I'm going to tell you a story that's true, and it's, uh, then we're out of here. One of these names is a r- proper name. The rest is not. The story is, is kept ambiguous for, for illogical reasons. The man's name was Bob, that's true. The rest is not. I mean, the rest of the story is true, but the names are not. Okay. <laughs> it's a story, but you can't believe it. Okay, all right. Bob, Bob, Bob and Doug were friends, and Doug led Bob to the Lord. True story. And Doug was, was discipling Bob, and, and they came to a place in their discipleship where he was going to teach Bob to pray. And they, he told him, he said, now we need to pray Uh, in our prayer we need to develop the habit of praying for other nations for other people and they agreed that they would choose a nation that they would pray for daily and Bob chose a third world country now the name I don't know the name but I'll just say it was Zimbabwe that's a good one and Bob chose to pray for Zimbabwe and Doug said you know I'll tell you why he said he could tell that Bob didn't really believe it would help any so he said I'll tell you what Lou friendly wager I'm not promoting gambling. Friendly wager, he said, said. I'll tell you what, Bob. He said, you pray for Zimbabwe 30 days, and if nothing tremendous happens in Zimbabwe, I'll give you $500. If something does, you give me 500 So they agreed. And Bob began to pray for Zimbabwe, and he prayed for two weeks, and he you know, looked at the paper and watch CNN and saw no real evidence of anything. You know. So one night, Bob is a... Was invited to a, a banquet a large banquet that was honoring the million-dollar roundtable people who'd sold a million dollars worth of life insurance he was a very successful life insurance executive so he went to that meeting and they were sitting around these round tables about eight to a table and he just happened to be seated with a lady who was from America but who was on a humanitarian she'd lived in Zimbabwe most of her life And she uh, was a humanitarian helping the the poor in Zimbabwe. So she said, he said, where are you from? She said, well, I'm from Zimbabwe. He said, Zimbabwe, that's my nation. She said, you're from there too? He said, no, but I'm, it's a long story, but I'm praying for that nation. So they got to talking. And she told him about all the needs and all she was doing over there in a humanitarian way, raising money for medicines and everything. And she and he he got so excited and so interested, she said, why don't you come over when I get back and just see what we're doing? And he, he agreed to, it. he paid his own way, he went to Zimbabwe. And he saw the suffering of a nation like he'd never seen before. Hunger and disease and misery. So he got back to the United States several of his clients were large pharmaceutical companies so he began to write letters he began to make calls and the bottom line is he got a million dollars worth of medicine sent to Zimbabwe and when the president of the country got that medicine he said who is this guy I guess that's what he said and he said he, he, he sent he sent word back to the United States to this Bob to come on back over and 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 to his country As his guest, and he paid his way to Zimbabwe the second time, and he stayed in the palace of the president while he was there. He saw some prisoners. True story. And he said to the president, "Who are these people?" He said, "Well, these are prisoners, political prisoners. Why are they here?" He said, "Well, because they oppose them." And here's this American. He says, "This uh, this isn't right." When he got back to America. About three or four days after he'd gotten back to America, about 2 o'clock in the morning, his phone rang. He got up out of bed and answered the phone. And a guy at the other end of the line said, Are you Bob so-and-so? He said, Yes. He said, Well, I'm from the State Department. He thought it was a crank call when they got all that cleared away. The man on the other end of the line got some identification to be sure that he was the person he was trying to get in contact with. And he said, Have you been to Zimbabwe? He said, Yeah, I just got back. He said, did you see some prisoners over there? He said, yeah, I did. I did see some. He said, what did you say to the president? And he said, well, I just said, this is not right. And the guy in the State Department said, those are political prisoners that we have been trying to make contact with for months, and they have just been released. And we want to know what happened while you were there. And when that all got out of the way, that's not, here's the rest of the story. The president of Zimbabwe invited Bob to come back to Zimbabwe, Set in on his cabinet meeting when he reinstituted and selected a brand new cabinet, and he was one, Bob was one, who actually helped the president select the cabinet. Now that is a true story. The greatest thing you can ever do in ministering administering or ministering grace is to become an intercessor. Constructive speech. Consistent, conscientious behavior, compassionate giving, continuous intercession. You want to be a minister of grace? us pray our father we pray you'll take these words that are so inadequate and make them adequate to accomplish what you desire in this place for I ask this in Jesus name I want to ask you to stand in a moment it's time for decision. you can't just come in here my friend and say amen to the sermon listen to the words, and go out. There's got to be some kind of change, decision that affects change. Maybe it's that you need to stop the way you're talking. (laughs) Maybe it's that you need to begin the way to love, to care, to pray. If God has spoken to your heart, somewhere on the timeline of your life, You're going to have to be obedient. Would it be today? While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.